Who do we got on? Let's see. We're a little late today, so I don't know. Yeah, we, we've changed around our time enough that I've had two or three people say, like, I will catch it when we do the recording. Yeah. yeah. I feel like most people are going are gonna to watch this after the fact, but that's okay. We, yeah, had, uh, like we had a fair of amount of people. In the CPC. <laughs> we have three attendees, so that's All we're right, not talking we're to going, ourselves. <laughs> Make it four. Pretty much. <laughs> But that's all right. We we all like to talk to ourselves, so that's right. Yeah. I can scare the there crap out of myself. It's when you answer yourself is when it's <laughs> right. a problem. Yeah, right. yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, all right. In this installment of the Construction Doorcast, we don our tinfoil hats as Chief Security Fanatic Nick Espinosa scares the bejesus out of us. We talk in depth about how construction companies and software companies alike can work to protect our data from ne'er do wells at home and abroad. Ever the techno-optimist, though, Nick brings it home with some positive messages and advice how to make smart choices both as organizations and individuals. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to join in live in two weeks when we talk to Walker Lockhart of Dato and James Simpson of Evolve MEP about the next generation of construction dorks. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today, our esteemed folks in the crowd, three or four folks. But uh, to those listening at home, this is the Construction Dorkcast. I don't know which episode we're at, other than if you can tell from my cohorts here who are wearing their tinfoil hats, this is the tinfoil hat episode. You will notice that I am not wearing mine, and that's because I'm coming to you from the Death Star today. So you're wearing your hats to protect yourselves from people like Nick and I. So, and, and without further ado, we have Nick Espinosa joining us today. We'll get to introducing him in a second. We thank him for joining us. But Trent coming to us from a bunker near you and a professionally made tinfoil hat. I like it. Uh, take it away. What you got drinking today and what you want to know from our security master. Oh, professional made. <laughs> you like that, right? Just kind of feel like that was a dig, you know. Uh, <laughs> this was kind of an afterthought, but threw it on there. Uh, but as you can see, I'm I'm in my bunker, so uh, I'm a little bit protected from Nick here today. But um, I don't have the bottle out here. But I made me a uh, got my cup, made me a bourbon on the rocks, and actually the bourbon is a wild turkey rare breed today. So going for uh going for a little bit of the bourbon tonight as i say going for broke trent's going to be interesting by the end on this one when am i not interesting he's <laughs> always on he's always on <laughs> more interesting than usual <laughs> well all right uh jonathan i'm going to jump down to you with truly well a construction yeah, that's only a true professional can do yeah, yeah. Tinfoil hat. It's not only a tinfoil hat, it's a freaking hard hat. Hard hat. Because I, I know what's coming. Like it was fine before COVID, but now it's it's really coming. <laughs> um, I'm doing um, a Delmore 12. Delmore 12. And this is new. Like I haven't tried this, but I came into work today and I had to go to the dentist and right beside it was a liquor store. And I said, I should go and just buy a different scotch. So I, I decided to do that. Um, you know what I wanted to know from Nick? Nick works with probably more MEP contractors than I would imagine any other security fanatic does. Does he see a difference between 
the construction like clients that he has and the other clients or are we all screwing up the same things you know so i i'd like to i'd like to find that out by the end of the episode yeah. All right. So chalk that one up, Nick. That's going to be one to come for you next. And just don't, uh, just don't give any way any of those names. All right. We'll keep those. We'll keep those to ourselves. Not that I have to warn Nick on how to be safe. Um, Travis, why don't you let us know what you got going on this morning? All right. This well, afternoon. Uh, uh, I'm drinking a, oh, got to find the right spot here. It's a Koval. It's a, this one's a four grain single barrel whiskey. It's distilled in Chicago, Illinois. So right in Nick's backyard. Um, it's got a, it's probably more of a bourbon-y finish with the four grains, a little bit more of a corn and sweeter, sweeter taste there. And, and, and I just, um, I, I've, since I saw Nick speak at my first MCA uh, event when I, when I started about four years ago, I just, it, I learned so much every time I get the, the, the bejesus scared out of me. And then he, he does bring in that, that this is what we can do. This is how we can do better. And, and I, I would piggyback off of Jonathan too. It's like, not so much you know, what, what the MEP is doing, but help us learn some lessons for some other industries. I, I think we in construction think that we're a little insulated because we're so far behind the curve when it comes to digital transformations, but I also think that just makes us more ripe for the pickings. Well, I think you guys are right there, and I think Nick's going to have a ton to say on it. So, Nick, we're going to roll to you here next. So, why don't you say hello? Well, we got Nick Espinosa with us, Chief Security Fanatic at Security Fanatics. So, easy title to remember. I didn't even have to write it down. Say hello and welcome, everyone, and, and let us know what you're drinking. Hello and welcome, everyone, and let you know what I'm drinking. This is a Lagavulin right there. That's, that's, yeah. my, uh, that's my jam. I'm also, like Jonathan, a Scotch fan. And uh, oh boy, do I have a lot of answers to a lot of questions you guys have <laughs> that you've mentioned already, uh, you know, quite a bit on, on everything. So where do you want me to start in that well, sense? Well, before we get you started, um, so Jeff Sample, uh, I'll be at the Wheels of Steel for the Construction Dorks today, trying to feed these questions in. And what am I drinking? Well, I'm always the odd one, if you didn't already figure that out. So today I have a little Zip Fizz, which is in my water here. Because, oh, you can't see the purple background. There it is, which is in my water today because I'm a B12 fanatic. And if you saw my schedule, you'd wonder how I'm still awake. So, and it is through Zip Fizz and B12. Um, and I will be having a Woodford Reserve later because I am off, not tomorrow. I leave on a vacation as well tomorrow night. So that's where we're at. Nick, I think I, I want to start, right, with a little bit around COVID right now. Um, I know it's the you shall not be named in some respects, but how has that really changed the security landscape other than the fact that we see you from your office like the rest of us every day? <laughs> um, honestly, it has singularly transformed um, cybersecurity and threat analysis, and I will tell you why. Um, I actually happen to be the official spokesperson for the COVID-19 Cyber Threat Coalition, which is a group of over 4,000 cybersecurity individuals in 24 time zones around the planet, all basically volunteering their time to, to essentially look at what we call IOCs or indicators of compromise that are coming in. We have never had an event in technological history in the computer age where pretty much every single malicious or criminal hacker, state-sponsored, whatever, is looking at the threat landscape and saying, I'm gonna do that. And that would be phishing, uh, phishing lures and fake websites for the COVID-19. And the interesting part, and one of the things that we've been tracking in the coalition as well is, um, 
basically how it how it changes. Uh, you know, hackers and attackers like to use the different trends. So initially, it's you know there, it was fake emails and websites on here's where you buy toilet paper, <laughs> you know, and then and then eventually it's going to be a fake website on well here's your stimulus check that didn't get to you, you know, kind of thing. But the interesting part about the entire situation with COVID-19 is that while the, all of the fishing lures were COVID-19, the, the front of the house was painted for COVID-19 or coronavirus, the actual attack methodology was the same old attack methodology that we have been basically defending against and monitoring for years at this point. And so there has really not been a new innovation uh, in that sense of uh, like, you know, there's always new infections being made, but the, just the, the standard fishing lure that everybody saw uh, through COVID-19, it was just coming from everywhere. Uh, you know, when I was interviewing uh, chief information security officers of major health organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, Denver Health, and all of that, they were seeing hundreds of percent in rise in phishing attacks against their employees, as a lot of my clients, as we monitor in real time, were seeing a massive rise in this kind of thing as well. So it, it's just singularly focused everybody in a way. And now that you know, some of the some of the media has focused away from that by virtue of George Floyd and now the protests and the riots and everything else that's going on. And now we've got an election cycle ramping up. We're starting to see a little bit of a divergence, uh, you know, in there. So emails and phishing that would say things like, you know, support Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter or phishing emails that say I'm against Black Lives Matter, you know, or, you know, you know, click here to support Trump or click here to support Biden or, you know, those kinds of things. But overall, consistently, at its peak at a rate of about 5,000 web registrations a day, everybody malicious was focused on coronavirus. So it's fundamentally changed uh, you know, how we've been able to come together as a community of cybersecurity professionals and actually defend against it because we were all literally in the same boat. I don't care if you're a contractor or you're a major hospital or a government, we were all seeing the same thing for pretty much the first time in our lives. Okay, you hit a mouthful there. Go ahead, Jonathan. So, so like, it sounds like they're, like you said, they're just using the same schemes that they were using. They're just using sort of different clickbait. Does, has you seen a big change because there's so many people that weren't online that now are online all day? Because I know my wife doesn't like to be online and she's on, on online all day now. And so like, I'm a little bit more worried. I probably spend more time watching her just to say, hey, you know, you know what actually happens if you just go click everything, right? You know what I mean? Have yeah. you seen that that be a sort of a wave or a cash cow? Um, short, short answer is yes. Um, and the reason being is that when essentially, and I like to say the bomb dropped, you know, and, uh, and the marker that I use is uh, basically I went on lockdown two days before the MCAA was going to have their huge conference in Hawaii because that's when I had to cancel my plane tickets, you know, <laughs> and all of that. So it's like, oh God, that, so literally, you know, that that's kind of the marker in my head immediately the, the calls started coming from, from uh, you know, existing clients and new potential clients saying, we are scrambling to move everybody remote. We want to do it in a secure way. Please help. You know, we don't know what we're doing, that kind of thing. Um, and so once that got settled about a month and a month and a half in or so, then we started getting the calls from the clients that didn't call us originally or new clients saying, well, we screwed up and now everybody's hacked and now we're locked out and oh my God, and what do we do? And we had one, uh, you know, one uh, mechanical contractor that got hit for 300 thousand dollars and you know that that kind of thing so so it, it's it's very much a, a a progression and now that's starting to settle down with that but the problem that we have in cybersecurity is that 
what a lot of organizations tend to do is build perimeters. So if you're sitting in an office building, we put a perimeter in via the firewall. And ideally we put in smaller perimeters behind that. But at the end of the day, everybody is sitting behind one, let's say hopefully enterprise class firewall that's supposed to check traffic. It's being backed up by antivirus. But now when you have people working from home and they're remoting in, you're introducing a whole bunch of risk because your house is not gonna have that $5,000 enterprise firewall that's detecting everything that's attacking you from Russia or wherever, you're going to have the $50 Best Buy Linksys that you're just using to get better wireless in your house that I can basically walk into or teach a third grade class how to break into, you know, very easily. And so, so by virtue of that, now, how do we defend against that? Because now you're bringing, let's say, a company issued laptop home, or God forbid, you're using your home computer where your kids are using it and doing God knows what, and now you've got to remote in and get your data from the company. So you're introducing a massive amount of risk. And by virtue of that, we in the cybersecurity community are looking at how do we now defend a shifting and changing perimeter when we are going to have ostensibly a remote workforce for like, let's say the next year or so. Google just came out a couple of days ago. Um, I did a video on it about they're extending the uh, work from home till July of next year, 12 months from now. So we are gotcha. bracing for that because typically where the big tech companies go with massive employees like Google and Facebook, a lot of other companies follow in suit because they're usually up on these kinds of things. So it, it is opened up a huge can of worms that, that we've basically had to adjust to on the fly, excuse me, for a lot of organizations that just didn't have good practices in place to begin with. So Travis, I, I think you have a really good question on the side there. So I want to open it up to you. You're muted. You'd think I'd be a pro at this by now. Um, so the first question that, that I kind of wanted to hack or write down there is, you know, uh, one of the things I always find interesting when you give your talks is, is for, for the, the non-techie out there, especially at some of your events that you speak at, you know, the, my background is the movie Hackers, right? You know, I think in 1995 <laughs> or something like that. And, and in those movies, like you just have, you have a bunch of teenage nerds just, just typing furiously with the keyboard. Maybe you could give a little insight into how hackers actually operate, what, what their, what their day-to-day -day thing is and, 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 and how does that open us, you know, how do they, how do they use tools and stuff to attack us? And, and, and is it really just sitting down and, and typing furiously at a keyboard? Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, we're not living in the matrix. Um, you know, it's, I, that might burst some bubbles here, but the answer is we're really not, or at least we don't <laughs> conform to that. No. So if you're looking at it, and this is a statistic, uh, it's an FBI statistic that I usually use on stage and it kind of just blows people's minds because, you know, I'll ask, okay, how long do you think it takes somebody like me to break into your company that's probably moderately defended and steal one file? You know, and the default answer is, oh, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, you know, 10 minutes. And somebody gets bold and says two hours. You know, my response is I'm, I'm, that, I'm that slow, really. You know, the, 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 the answer though, typically on average per FBI statistic is 224 days. On average, it's gonna take me 224 days to break into your company and steal one single file. Now, 7% of all attacks happen in under 60 seconds. That's when your password is password or you're not updating things and it's very easy to get in, but that's the average. Now, conversely, it takes the organization on average and the old FBI statistic was 142 days to realize that I've actually done that. And so what damage can I do in 142 days? The problem that we have now is that the last statistic that we have from the FBI on that bumped it from 142 up to 192 which tells us that basically hackers are getting more sophisticated by virtue of this. Now, the other thing too, and this, I've mentioned this on stage as well, 
that if you think it's something it, it, like somebody like me is going to sit in front of a you know computer for 224 days straight just trying to break into you no way I, I got better things to do with my life i have the ability to take a lot of what's called exploit framework load up all the possible attacks all the possible compromises that i think might be uh in your system and let my machines just constantly attack you find various ways in and once they found that vulnerability they basically alert me and then i use the vulnerability they found and i just get right into your system and so when we are doing things for organizations like running penetration tests that's a, that's a lot of what we're doing is we're enumerating you know those vulnerabilities the other thing i've done on stage as well is i show you how i can break into like massive fortune 100 companies that don't actually secure things like their website how i can hijack them get you know telemetry off of this uh simply because they're not running proper controls in front of it when any organization could and for smaller organizations it's only usually a few hundred bucks a month or i'm sorry a few hundred bucks a year to actually uh you know really defend a website effectively so you know, so these are things that are out there, but yeah, it's not, it's not this whole 60 seconds or, you know, I mean, I'd love to jump out of an airplane with a laptop and break into something before I land, but you know, nobody's going to hire me to do that. I would like to try though at some point, you know, but yeah, no, it takes a while and usually the machines do the work. I'm not, I'm not Hugh Jackman and swordfish just breaking the transit <laughs> system in a, in a minute, you know, kind of thing. Hey, I got a question for you. You talked, um, about the no trust network a lot when you zero were or the zero zero trust sorry is there an equivalent that, for that for a distributed workforce or, or like what's the gold standard for a distributed workforce in terms of security yes so there absolutely is zero, a zero trust capability um, in a remote workforce uh, what we look at is and, and let me put it this way at the most basic level let me let me tell you what a, a zero trust network is Assume for a moment you have two computers on the network, okay? In a standard default network, 30-year-old topology that virtually every company uses called a perimeter-based network. These two machines can talk out to the internet, the internet can talk to them, but they can also talk to each other because they're on the same network. And so in a zero trust environment, what we are doing is we are isolating these two machines so that they can't talk to each other, but they can go out to the internet, but the interactions with the internet are filtered through threat management. So if somebody tries to download an infection or something like that, they're blocked. But if one machine gets infected, it can infect the other machine because they can't talk. Zero trust between them. And so when we are looking at when we are and, and that's a very basic, there's a lot more complex, but that's the basic basic. And so when we are looking at a distributed workforce, a remote workforce, a workforce in multiple locations, because, you know, the, the company has a lot of different buildings, what we're doing is creating a zero trust environment. So, for example, uh, let's say, Jonathan, you had to remote into your office in order to get, uh, you know, critical stuff. Maybe your office has five different servers with five different things, one for sales and accounting and, you know, on and on and on. But you just need, let's say, BIM, okay? You need to just get all of that information. Well, what we would do is we would set you up to remote in, and the only thing you would be able to talk to would be the server that would give you your information as opposed to a default setup for remote, which would allow you to talk to everything. And so if you can't for, for example, if you cannot, um, let's say, talk to the phone system, you can't hijack it or a printer or anything else, all you can do is talk to BIM or the BIM server. And, and let's say at worst, uh, what you could possibly do is infect that. 
there's going to be a filter between you and the server. So as you're talking to it, it's going to be detecting threat. As that server attempts to talk to other assets, other servers, wherever, it's also being scanned for threat as well. And so what we are doing is lowering the surface area for attack for our users by, even if they're remote, they only have a very specific, very limited scope with what they can do. And even though they can do, let's say that limited scope, that is 100% constantly and continuously checked for threat. And so that's how we that's how we mitigate that. And so there are absolutely secure ways. We can look at, for example, um, there's a Taiwanese chip maker um, that had just won the Apple contract. This is about three years ago. They had a complete outage due um, about 10,000 machines of theirs across multiple factories all got ransomed simultaneously because they actually didn't put in a control like that. And so when they were connecting both of those buildings through VPN, nothing was checking the threat and everything got infected. It shut production down worldwide in every facility they had for weeks as they tried to unscrew themselves. And they had literally just signed with Apple to manufacture the new processors for Apple like four years ago or whatever it was. You know, that is an ex exact uh, example of the opposite of what I'm talking about. If I was in that scenario, we'd have to make a use case for why does this factory need to talk to this? Okay, it's one specific thing. Then we allow that one specific thing. We don't allow everything. And that one specific thing, we are looking at that like we're proctologists doing an exam. I mean, that thing is going to be scrutinized. That's how you. That's how you roll with zero trust. And so you can absolutely do it in a in a zero trust in a distributed workforce. So that's talking about the the internal networks. What about how do you know that a good the software product's a good idea that it's got good security? How do you analyze that? Since a lot of the the folks that we deal with are looking at this, you know, modern software to install and, right. and use. Well, so I mean, I think the first thing to understand is that any 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 interaction we have with business, and I don't care if it's personal, like I'm I'm talking to my wife or my kids or my auto mechanic, or you know, I'm walking into Home Depot to buy something for my house, which I did the other day. We are entering into a trust relationship with that organization. So with Home Depot, I am trusting that they're gonna put me on camera, but they're not gonna run facial recognition on me because they say they won't. I'm trusting that when I give Home Depot my credit card to buy $100 of whatever, that they are gonna to adhere to PCI DSS standards. And so part of the vetting process that we would have for software would be, okay, we wanna see the standards that you adhere to. Do you have a SOC 2 compliance report, which is a very basic thing. Anybody that is, excuse me, hosting any kind of infrastructure should be able to produce a SOC 2 report. We are looking at compliances. We are looking at portals. We will run penetration tests on the global facing portal. So for example, let's say you're signing up for some kind of software and every single client goes to like, you know, um, you know, login dot, you know, construction software.com or whatever it is, we're going to hit that. You know, if we're consulting, we're going to run that. We want those reports. We are going to put together a complete questionnaire based on data security standards for encryption, for privacy. We are going to get written assurances of that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, part of it comes down to, to trust as well. If I'm in a meeting and I've got, let's say, one of their security personnel and this guy is hemming and hawing or not giving me the information I need, that's a huge red flag. Their, their team should be able to know exactly what they're doing. We can sign an NDA, so I'm not sitting there tweeting it five minutes after that meeting. Hey, guys, they're wide open. You know, so it... it these are the kinds of things that we put in place as we are vetting software. And the next, the next part of that would obviously be the usability side of it. But one of the things that we like to see specifically is code-based library reviews. 
there has to be a software production cycle that basically uh, assures improvement, but also scanning. Programmers like to get lazy. Oh, I've been using this code for like the last 10 years and it's fine. But you know, they don't know that the author of that original code maybe has updated it 30 times because vulnerabilities have crept in and they're using a 10 year old version, integrating it into brand new software. Those are the things that we are looking for. And if we're working with software development and we have clients that, in, that are in software development, um, you know, those are the things that we're recommending that they do or so that we do for them. You're talking about the duplicity there. So one, you can represent the, um, the client themselves, the, the mechanical contractor, the contractor themselves, or you can actually be on the flip side and representing or, uh, so talk about that. You, that was the part where, you know, you're going to look over an NDA, talk to them about what they have. You know, you're really going to take that stance, right. but on the flip side, then you work with the software side. And what do you do when you're in there with the software side? I mean, you hit that on the code and I, I, yeah. I think quite a few of the VDC and BIM guys understand writing code, but also stealing code, you know, or, sorry, borrowing it. Yeah. <laughs> None of you actually writes it. You actually copy it from somewhere oh. and edit the variables for yourself. Right. That's, that's the unspoken agreement, right, that we all have in that. No, so if I'm working with a software um, you know, development company, for example, some of the stuff we're looking at is, okay, what infrastructure are they, are they running? You know, are they on a major platform like Microsoft Azure, you know, AWS, SoftLayer from IBM, those kinds of things. What is their um, uptime for disaster recovery? Because Microsoft does occasionally go down. We had a, something like 40 million uh, Office 365 users were out like a week and a half ago. So how are they replicating that content somewhere else so that let's say Microsoft goes down and then what's called the CDN, their content delivery network just routes everybody to the backup server instantly and keeps on running. We're looking for that. What are the security controls that, that are in place? We will go into like a Microsoft Azure and we'll run what's called a CIS audit basically of every single control checkbox or command that you can configure to see what they do and do not have. Part of this is understanding the compliances of the organization as well to say, okay, you have customers that are, let's say, compliant for DFARS, FedRAMP, or NIST because they're government contractors. Maybe you've got PCI for credit cards. You know, maybe in some way, shape, or form, they're integrated with healthcare for HIPAA. We're saying, okay, because you're catering, you're in the supply chain for DFARS, you now fall under DFARS. What are you doing to ensure that you have got basically that product lifecycle, that security measure uh, that we're doing. So it's not just code-based library reviews, it's not just penetration testing, it's fundamentally understanding that the organization has administrative, technical, and physical safeguards in place and policies and procedures to enforce all of that. And they're actually doing that. A lot of companies have it on paper and then we come in and do an audit and they've got wonderful documentation and nobody's doing a damn thing you know, on the back end. Everybody's fast and loose and oh yeah, we outsource half of it to Russia because they're cheap. <laughs> you know, actually had that one once, you know, and, you know, so, so you don't know. Um, and so our goal is to just enumerate that, see what that is. And then we score them and say, okay, these are the big rock things. Like, you know, if, if you have a hundred things to do, these five bang for your buck will actually improve your defense right out of the gate, which means you're improving your client's defense, which is construction or MEP or whatever it is. So without calling anyone out to the popped in my mind, I mean, in your experience, how many software providers, you know, because, you know, we're a mechanical contractor that, that do work in government jobs and everything like that. How many software providers do you think actually understand the fact that because we do work for the federal or state governments that they also need to adhere to those standards? Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think we have to differentiate between understanding and recognizing and actually executing. 
because I talk to a lot of organizations that are in software development that's like, oh yeah, we know about FedRAMP and DFARS and all that. We haven't done anything about it, but we know about it. <laughs> you know, we recognize we should do something and, you know, please help us get on that road because, you know, we're selling this to, to everybody that does, you know, DFARS or whatever. Um, so I, I think there's, there's an industry-wide issue with that. Um, you know, now DFARS and FedRAMP and all of that are maturing into what's called the CMMC. That's the, basically the cybersecurity maturity model um, that, that a business can get certified on. And so a lot of software developers are looking for the CMMC certification now, which is 1.0. It's brand new. The government's still shaking it down, but that's where this industry is going because I think the government is realizing we've got a whole lot of insecure contractors that are doing everything from, you know, building our aircraft carriers and parts for it to, to the weaponry to, to, you know, simple plastic parts that go on the Mars rover, you know, so it, it's, you know, it, it's a very mixed bag, but I will say this, a lot of these smaller software development companies that I have dealt with tend not to have that business mind. It tends to be a guy that is a programmer, usually a damn good programmer that said, I see a gap in an industry. I can fill that. I can make something. Let me package it and then we'll put it out. And like web designers, they really don't think about the infrastructure and they really don't think about the security of it. Web designers are the worst uh, <laughs> you know, when it comes to that hands down. Um, you know, so by virtue of that, it's, it's a, I think it's a process. And so part of like what we will do is come in and say, look, like I'm basically going to be your virtual chief information security officer. This is not lip service that you have to pay. Like you will be put out of business, like no government agency entity contractor or subcontractor will touch you. Uh, you know, if you have a, you know, if you have something that is simply not gonna, not going to be there in place that you can verify as a control. So it's a huge problem, but I, th I would say a healthy, healthy percentage without directly quantifying it. Cause I don't think I can, um, a healthy percentage while they know it, they understand it, they acknowledge it. They just, they, they, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to execute on it or actually put it into a framework. Well, I think you hit on something neat, uh, interesting there. Cause most of the reports that I've come across as being an IT director on the other side and hiring folks like you to come in and beat it up. Um, there's a misnomer that you're going to give me a list of like 85, hundred things. I'm sure at just about every time. Cause we all have holes. There's just, there's no perfect environment, but you hit on it before there's, it's not about plugging all the holes. It's about understanding the critical ones and why and right. investing in that. And how does that relate? How do you, cause you've got to sell this at times. How do you talk to customers about, you know, doing that and investing in that and then for other people to pick the right software because they've gone through that. Right. Well, I mean, I will say a couple of different things. I'm actually pretty selective with my clients. We get a lot of people that say, Hey, we'd like to be a client and you know, this is what we need and all of that. I've typically come back and say, okay, just going through an assessment, looking at all of this stuff. These are the things that you need, uh, you know, and if they're not really like, well, we can't afford this or, or we're not going to do this or, oh my God, the solution is too expensive over time. Is there a cheaper answer out there or is there a cheaper solution out there? My typical answer is there absolutely is. And I'm happy to set it for the colleague that will give you that solution. You know, basically I'm not going to put my name to your bad choices because this is, you know, in the same way, I'm not going to question my dentist when he's in my mouth pulling my teeth out because they need to be pulled. Just do it and, and drug me up, you know. Um, so by virtue of that, I mean, I, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that, that you don't go from zero to Fort Knox in a day. You know, you, it takes time. And usually a maturity model for an organization takes anywhere from six months to two years. And so by virtue of that, 
the way I'm typically positioned it is at the end of the day, at the end of the two years, you're going to be a lot closer to Fort Knox than you were, you know, when you started. But every little thing you put in makes you that much more of a pain in the ass to break into. I would never walk into a client and say, I can make you hack proof. And for the record, if anybody ever tells you that, they are lying through their teeth. Uh, you know, but the, the, the difference is, is that I can make you such a pain in the butt. We can layer security to a point where it is just so difficult to hit you, access you, steal your username and password so that you can start phishing your, your accounting department, whatever that is. But what people don't realize is that a good cyber defense strategy is designed not to impede the workflow. It's designed to surround the user with defensive technologies, remove needless choices. Your people do not need to get to the control panel, for example, to go to point A to point B in their business, and then, and then just let them do their job. With the exception of probably a multi-factor authenticated login, you never see the defensive technologies in place unless something goes wrong. Try to download a file you shouldn't, you're gonna see it. You know, Try to go to an adult website and you're not allowed, you're gonna see it. But, but overall, that's the road that we are on. And if you are, if you have a, if you don't have an, a quarterly improvement plan, you know, for cybersecurity for your organization, that goes no more than two years out because it, it because cybersecurity is one of those um, verticals, if you will, that will pivot on a dime. Regular technology really in IT doesn't, but cybersecurity does. I know that the iPhone 10 is going to be awesome and the iPhone 11 is going to make the iPhone 10 look horrible and the iPhone 12 is going to make the iPhone 11 look like a piece of junk, in, in which case we're getting a slightly better camera every damn time. You know, that is how technology typically works. But in cybersecurity, we don't know when that like 13-year-old kid is going to break Google and we all have to slam on the brakes and rethink the entire strategy. And that has happened multiple times, uh, you know, in the last, you know, 20 plus years that I've been in cybersecurity. And so by virtue of that, it's a six month to two year plan, typically, unless the, the company basically is Oprah, you know, you get a firewall, you get a firewall, everybody gets a firewall. Very few companies, you know, give a blank check, but, but for the most part, you can stick to this and you can continuously harden your network over time doing that. Hey, me and me and Jeff go back and forth about, sort of that threshold between security and getting in the way of, of people actually doing their job. When you go into these clients and you look at that, um, all of us like on this podcast are dealing with technology that's just come on. We're, we're first adopters, we're, we're doing the trailblazers, so we break a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and, and hopefully we stay in a little sandbox off to the side and don't hurt anybody. But, but when you go into these companies, do you tell them that, that there's a value to not getting in your employee's way in, in terms of their day-to-day -day work or, or where do you fall? Because me and Jeff go back and forth about what's more important, being secure or, or getting the job done or, 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 or you know, where, where that risk lies. Like, right. I want to download and try, I want to try any app from China. I just want to download <laughs> it and, and kick it off and see what happens. I have a network for that. What's the worst that can happen? I have a network for that. Believe me, if you want to start drinking, you should see what these things do. My God. Um, to, to that point, Jonathan, you, you, said, you said the magic word, and that's risk. What most organizations don't have a good understanding of is risk tolerance. And so I will put it this way. At the most basic level, if you as a company, you as a CEO, CFO, CIO, whatever, can't tell me, in basic terms, how many computers can be down for how long before everybody is screaming, torches and pitchforks at the CEO's door, or you're just out of business, then how can you build a proper network? How do you know that your IT team, whether they're third party or in-house, has built you 
a, a backup disaster recovery plan, for example, for a ransomware event that is actually going to meet that threshold. You know, can production be down for, for six hours and everybody's screaming? You know, can marketing be down for a week and nobody cares? If you can't quantify these things, how do you possibly put a number to this? And I get this a lot because I, as I'm dealing with the C-level and I don't want to deal with typically the IT director, I'm more a drinking buddy to the IT director getting his projects through. I want to talk to the CEO and the CFO because those are the people that are actually going to make things move in the organization. And I am talking to them about this. You know, they cannot typically quantify for me this kind of thing, which means now everything that they have done to defend themselves is suspect. Not to mention the fact that IT is not cybersecurity. It's an entirely different animal. You know, the, the conversations I have when we are dealing with, let's say, a cybersecurity project and, you know, let's say how to, how to fish a client or break into uh, an organization, you know, it's a different animal than, okay, like today we're going to work on updating all the servers today. It's a different thing. And so... Understanding that risk tolerance is something that every organization needs to do along with understanding where their cybersecurity gaps are and then building a plan based on that risk. I walk into so many organizations where the CEO is like, well, we can never be down like ever, like everybody's going to be working 24 seven, you know, we're slave drivers here, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, we can absolutely do that for you, but it's going to be like a million dollars. Like, well, maybe six hours, maybe a day, maybe a week. You can't tell me honestly how do you know what you have is solid? And, and that is usually where it starts. I usually don't start with like the cybersecurity of that because the cybersecurity is basically the shield that is going to protect that engine that is the business moving down, moving down the road. But I don't know what that shield needs to be until I know just how good the car is. It's breaking down every other mile. You know, it, it's, it's time to talk about that. Yeah. Hey, Nick, I'm going to I'd like to step in too. I, I think um, like Travis, Jonathan, and I, we, we kind of represent uh, some mechanical contractors and companies that are much smaller. You know, a lot of us are regional contractors and we're, we're not these giant uh, corporations that, not that you should treat cybersecurity any differently depending on size, but right. with, with the way that, um, that COVID-19 has altered the way we work and now we've got a lot of people working from home. Um, we have a lot of you know, managers that manage projects through network drives, things that we've had set up for years. Uh, so I know how we've, and certain people have approached it. We've approached the work from home through utilization of VPNs. You know, some people have used um, cloud drives, different things, I guess, point, point me in the right direction. Like what, what would be the most secure way for a contractor of our size uh, to handle that work from home. So, you know, is a VPN viable? Does it protect me? Um, what's the... So that's a really good question, but that is also an incredibly loaded question. Um, and, the, and the reason being is that the way I look at it is every single client I have from every single vertical, I'm construction otherwise, I mean, we work globally, um, is that they're like fingerprints. Everybody has a different setup. Everybody has a different use case. And while there might be common technologies, oh, everybody uses Office 365 for email, um, you know, the challenges of, of how the, the business typically operates with the processes that it has in place is different. And so for example, if you have an organization that let's say is in construction, small to mid-size, um, it is now 100% working uh, you know, basically from home, nobody's in the office, but everything is in the cloud, then why do we need to set up a VPN into the office if nobody needs access to that simply to, you know, to, to introduce another risk? Is there something else that we can do? How are we looking at, let's say, the disparate technologies in the cloud and saying, how is this being controlled? 
you know, I might be, I might work for one of these companies. I might have five different clouds that I have to go into email, a database, you know, maybe BIM, Autodesk, you know, something like that. And then, you know, and then I've got, you know, a file share, like a, like a Dropbox, God forbid, or something else. And now I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, I have five independent usernames and passwords. What happens if, because this is a pandemic, I have to let that guy go. Is anybody quantifying this? Is anybody controlling this? Does anybody know what this guy really has access to? That is one of those things that, that as we are looking at it, we are looking at the more advanced technologies that are starting to be adopted at enterprise and trickling down to midsize and small, which are things like software-defined perimeter and identity management. And so instead of looking at, at let's say, an individual or, or all of your clients, I would say in one shot saying a one-size-fits-all, the goal is to understand what the organization is doing and then adapt the security to the technology that they are running. If you're 100% in the cloud, then I would recommend things like identity management solutions like an Okta that will basically bring what's called a single sign-on with multi-factor authentication. So I log into one website and I log into everything. Now you think, okay, well, that seems a lot less secure because now you're logging into one place and all your eggs are in one basket. The answer is no. What ends up happening in a situation like that is one, you have a multi-factor authentication, so it's much harder to hit, but it gives you awareness of what the user is, is, is doing. So for example, let's say Jeff works for me and suddenly Jeff, who I know is, you know, I guess in outer space at the moment, um, you know, if, if Jeff, let's say, is logging in 50,000 times a second to one of my five different databases and he's doing it from Vietnam, then an Okta is going to kick in and say, wait a second, he's geofenced to outer space or Colorado or wherever. He's not supposed <laughs> to be in Vietnam. And his behavior as a user is weird because no user is going to be able to type that fast. And so what it's going to do is it's not going to just cut Jeff off from, let's say, Office 365. It's going to kick in and cut him off from everything instantly. And so now you've protected the entire organization. And so there's a lot of different things that you can do. Conversely, if everything is in, if everything is in the, in the um, office and you have to have a VPN, then you're looking at applying the VPN, but you're also looking at how you can create a multi-factor authenticated system. Because if I, for example, hijack Jeff's mobile phone or his laptop, then I get right in. But if there are other things, like let's say it's a username and password, but it's also an identification of like, let's say the UID, which is unique to every single phone and device on the planet, then now I know that if I clone Jeff's phone, it's not going to let me in because that doesn't match. Maybe it's also pairing with a biometric, like a fingerprint or a face ID. It's also looking at all the applications on the phone to see if all of that matches. These are all the different kinds of things that we look at. So to basically answer your question, it really is a case by case basis, but there is defendable technology for virtually any scenario out there. That's kind of where I was going with that. Yeah, and, and, and I'll piggyback on that. I, I could say, I think most of the software platforms we use anymore are cloud-based. I think what remains, uh, you know, private network side would be file shared, right? I think we have a lot of project managers and a lot of management teams that utilize network drives to organize files for their projects. And I think, and I think that's where the VPN comes in, but I would ask the question to you, what makes, you know, what's more secure doing that with a VPN or using some kind of, uh, cloud-based drive, or I, I think I know the answer, but. Right. Well, so the typical calculation, and for the record, I, as I mentioned, you'd be surprised at how many clients of mine actually have on-site assets. Most, uh, most companies are actually, I think, running a hybrid scenario where you have 
a whole bunch of cloud infrastructure, but you've also got a whole bunch of on-premise infrastructure as well. And there's a use case to be made for both, I think. You know, so the, the, so the libertarian side of, of, you know, the philosophy as well, if it's all in all in-house, it's not in the cloud. I'm not using somebody else's computer because that's what the cloud is, somebody else's computer. And so I am storing it, I'm maintaining it, I'm defending it. The other side of that is, well, now you have to update it with the same frequency of the cloud, which is virtually impossible for you to do. Now you have to make sure that that you know everything is is secured and up to date in your security side, which again is virtually impossible to do and run advanced identity management, which is a lot harder to integrate into a non-prem solution. So a lot of companies are, are I, I like to say, halfway through moving to the cloud. And since 2017, the CSA or Cloud Security Alliance that quizzes and polls businesses every year, since 2017, more businesses are trusting the cloud for those reasons I mentioned than not. Um, but to, to understand uh, for an organization, which is better? Do I just keep my files in a Windows server in my office or do I move to a Dropbox, God forbid, type solution? Because there are better products than Dropbox out there. Um, which, which, is, which is better? And I think, I think the way you look at it is as we move remote, odds are the cloud is going to give you more advantages for something like that because you can have the same locking system uh, in the cloud that you do on site. So for example, if I open up a Word document and you Trent try to open it, you're going to get a thing that says, oh, hey, you can't open this because this file has already been locked. Same way you would in, if, if it was just in your office. Uh, so a lot of that's there, but the cloud, especially if you pick the right solutions, will give you things like auditing. It will give you hardened security, military-grade encryption that you typically do not install into your servers in the office because you're just assuming the firewall is going to defend you and I can usually walk through half of them on the planet very easily. You know, so, so these are the kinds of things that we are looking at, not to mention the audit trail. Who deleted the file? Now you know exactly because you can drill to the file and see what person deleted it. Unlimited revision history, you open an, a Word document and save it 1,000 different times with 1,000 changes. Now you can restore version 928 if you need to compare. You know, these are the kinds of things that the cloud can give you. You just have to do it in the, in the proper and secure way. And it has to be the best case scenario for you because a lot of companies are using databases right now where those companies are either defunct or they didn't move to the cloud or they moved to the cloud. And my God, you could buy a Ferrari every year for what they want you to pay you know now we're talking. right you know so 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 then by virtue of that companies choose to stay in in how i see it manufacturing like cnc manufacturing all the time i've got clients with like windows nt4 machines hooked up to the <laughs> cnc because they can't get rid of it and they'll be damned if they're spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a million dollars yeah. per machine well, they're not still supporting that what <laughs> we we create what's called compensating controls for those machines <laughs> because we can't defend them. I can't install like an, a modern AV, yeah. you know, so, so here we are. Yeah. So, so again, it's, it's case by case, but I think there's a lot of positive uh, use cases for the cloud, especially uh, as we become more stratified, more diverse in terms of the locations that we're, we're accessing the data from. I, so I want to come back to that one. I want, I definitely want to come back to that one, but we got a question from the audience. So Ralph, asked so cloning a phone can happen how common is that uh so i do uh not to spoiler alert anybody but at multiple mcaa and ua conferences not to mention smacna as well um i have actually uh, been on stage and been able to successfully hijack and enumerate phones uh, simply because somebody connected to the wrong Wi-Fi. it's not hard to do um it's very simple there's also and i will say this um, do not buy Apple's hype. Apple has been lying to you since 2015 on their security. We break iPhones 
all the time. Uh, and one of the reasons why is that iPhone in their, or Apple in their infinite wisdom decided, oh, we're gonna remove every antivirus capable, uh, capable app from the app store in 2015 because their own sandboxing and vetting system for new apps was so good, you'd never need one. Well, three months later, Exco Shell, a hacker out of, I think the Ukraine broke it. Then we found out the CIA and the Chinese were just walking through it left <laughs> and right. We can infect these all the time. We've actually infected phones uh, when we're hitting clients where we're able to turn on the camera and the microphone, record conferences, steal usernames and oh, passwords, wow. copy out pictures, uh, all this kind of stuff. It is very easy, especially if you're sharing common infrastructure. So yes. That's why I'm wearing yes, the SMS hijack. Yeah. <laughs> SMS or text messaging is no longer considered secure for two-factor authentication. You log into your bank, you get a text message. That's not considered secure by NIST anymore because SMS hijacking is so insanely prevalent as is SIM card hijacking, SIM card swapping, and everything else. Phones are phones are a walking nightmare yeah. uh, for the cybersecurity field. Same with <laughs> that's, like the, that's like the guy who sits in front of his laptop with the tape over the camera, but the phone's sitting next to the laptop, right? Right, you know? right. I just, I just recently saw, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I saw, I saw a recent meme and it said, uh, what was it? Like a, people are saying, oh, well, I don't want to get like a vaccination for COVID because it'll put a brain chip, like a Bill Gates brain chip. <laughs> You're so carrying I saw, one. I saw yeah. an image that said brain chip starter pack and it had a smartwatch <laughs> and a phone. And a Google <laughs> We're already being tracked left and right. The brain chip. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely making a case for me wanting to just stay in this cabin in Tennessee that I'm heading to next week. Um, but no. I wanted to, to, to kind of piggyback off the, you were talking about, you know, the, the, um, the right size solution for whatever you're doing in the right side of the company, you know, and, and to, to follow that a little bit is, um, you know, a lot of companies, uh, you know, in, in, in our industry, we're, we're always stuck with the buy versus build mentality. Um, when we're doing software, can you can you elaborate a little bit for you know if if I'm a, a mechanical you know a mid-sized to large-sized mechanical contractor and I decide I want to hire a bunch of programmers to come in and, and write some sort of project management solution for me, what kind of things do I need to be aware of since I'm not going to go rely on on an Autodesk or a Procore sure. or a Bluebeam or anything like that? Sure. Oh no, I I totally get that. Um, and. I, I will say this, just, just right out of the gate. Um, a company like Autodesk or a company like Bluebeam is going to have a software development cycle that is gonna be significantly more hardened than just saying, I can hire a whole bunch of guys in India to do this for like 10 bucks an hour. You will get something that will probably work, but the problem that you're gonna have is updating the life cycle of the software. Is, it's gonna be much harder to do. I'm not saying you can't do it, especially if you have a use case and a need. I have a lot of clients in either fabrication or something like that, that I said, we've hired in-house people to, to literally just do this for us because we can't find a solution for this. And I, I totally understand that, but I think we have to understand a couple of different things. And when I am approached by a client saying, hey, we are considering a new piece of software, whether it's development or, or, um, you know, or, or something that, that's already out there, my, my first thought is, this is going to potentially fundamentally change how you do business. It will change process, it will change control, it will change flow, it will change work habit. 
you have to understand a whole bunch of different things because if you are not willing to fully drink the Kool-Aid, crack the whip on your people to make sure that they are drinking the Kool-Aid and using that process, you are going to waste an absolute crap ton of money buying something or developing something that will go absolutely nowhere for you. And that has been a huge, huge problem that we have. And you see a whole bunch of software get adopted and then abandoned, adopted, then abandoned. And, and then you get leaders that, that are really not embracing technology being like, we are just wasting money year after year. And it's because nobody has pounded into them that lesson that says, look, this is not something that you're just going to deploy and ignore and do this. Everybody has to do this. And if you have employees, and if you don't understand, or I should say this, if you don't understand that a lot of your employees are set in their ways, resistant to change and all of this, you have to quantify that. You have to take that into, into consideration before you do one or the other. I can talk about the cybersecurity side of, let's say, developing it in-house, how you are hardening that code, how are you protecting that intellectual property that you have, because if you get hit and ransomed, there goes your intellectual property as well. So that is a consideration that you have to take. Now, that said, there are massive corporations that go out. For example, I'm a big fan of Garmin uh, in terms of like their technology and stuff. Their cloud sucks. They just, yeah, they just, <laughs> got, they just got hit and they went down for maintenance for like something like a week or two because they got hit. They didn't run good security controls on that. And that's obviously a very serious problem. And so how is a Garmin that is going to invest in that life cycle uh, in that way gonna compare to let's say what your organization is gonna invest for its defense, its product development, it's, it's everything else. But, but at the end of the day, but before you make even that decision, understand you are introducing something into an ecosystem that you have created that is running smoothly, that is going to disrupt it ideally for a short period of time where everybody gets on board and adopts it. And if you can't do that, if you can't quantify what that looks like, then seriously reconsider changing your software, uh, you know, or start hiring people that are able to adapt, which nobody wants to hear, but it's the truth. If you've got, yeah. let's say, a workforce that says, well, I'm using Microsoft Excel and I'll be damned if I get into an accounting program, that is the wrong accounting team, <laughs> you know, to have. Because hey, everybody's moving. We had that episode. <laughs> My God, get, get to QuickBooks 2008, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, let alone every, the newer stuff. So, so th this is what we're talking about here. I think that's well, the real consideration that needs to be made. I, I would like to just real, real quick before Jeff, before you do, yep. I would like to point out that the, that Nathan Woods pointed out that the, the term drink the Kool-Aid comes from Jim Jones at Jonestown. So take that for what you will. Yeah. Right. If you haven't watched a documentary on that, you need to watch documentary and know when every time you say drink the Kool-Aid where that one came from. Yes. Well, my Kool-Aid uh, is delicious and protective. Yeah. <laughs> his kool-aid's protective kool-aid um well you mentioned this along the way and it was uh travis althouse actually asked this question in there and i think it's a great one you mentioned enterprise class security um what's that exactly mean does that mean it's spock approved um you know, what does it mean Yes, yes, it is. It is absolutely Spock approved. No, what I mean by this is there, there are different, different levels of equipment. Now, before I go through that, understand where I'm coming from here, because like I said, technology has a product development cycle that is essentially very slow moving. 
every new Android generation is going to be a little better than the, the last one. Same with Apple. Your laptop this year is a little better than the one last year. But at the end of the day, it's pretty much the same thing. Cybersecurity pivots on a dime. And the way we look at cybersecurity is it's one of those things that's a zero-sum game in life, which are very few things are. But you're either defended or you're not. And so if you're putting in something that is, let's say, 85% effective against the leading uh, capable, let's say, firewall, for example, that's a 15% gap that you are opening up right out of the gate. There are some things that in technology you can absolutely cheap out on. There are other things that you cannot. And so the difference between a mid-range firewall, and I'm talking like, you know, SonicWall, WatchGuard, uh, Cisco Meraki, uh, Sophos, those versus an enterprise firewall like Palo Alto, Checkpoint, you know, those, that level is night and day. What I can sit there and download uh, in terms of zero-day infections through a SonicWall or Meraki is, is night and day. We do, it, we do it all the time. And so when we are talking about cybersecurity, we are talking about getting enterprise level equipment. And it might cost you, let's say, 10 to 20% more than the mid-range, but the defense capability, my God, it's, it's night and day. And so I have clients that, have, that are, let's say, three to five users, but they do something very specific, very intellectual property driven. And I've got massive Fortune 100 clients. They're all going to be on enterprise level security. That's going to be monitored in real time. They're going to be able to not take that 224 days and wait for that. They're going to know those threats are happening within seconds or minutes and then have a remediation plan in place. And this does not break the bank. You know, it's a little more, but, but again, if you're going to spend uh, in terms of making sure that your technology infrastructure is sound, cybersecurity needs to have a, a very solid budget. I don't care if you cheap out on computers, how you defend the computers you shouldn't cheap out on. And that's, that's a very important distinction to make. I like the idea of not cheaping out. And I think it's something that, you know, uh, the contractors that are listening and that are on can kind of understand. It's, it's like going with the low bid over going with, you know, somebody who's got is gets behind their, their bid and follows through and you guys are more expensive. And I think if, uh, then maybe the cheap guy, but I think that's because in the end, if you look at the total return, it's far more, um, reliable to use a good contractor. So I think you can use the same analogy there. I also forgot. Say, that hopefully, hopefully that resonates with the contractors listening because we all get torqued off at, at everybody picking just, you know, just the race to the bottom with a little bit, like hopefully they understand. And they appreciate that. Yeah. Well, no. I think there are some things <laughs> the way can. of the world. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but there are, there are some things you can, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you're very frugal, uh, you know, in your life, you can go buy, you know, like a $10,000 Toyota, or you can go buy a Mercedes, you know, and they're both going to get you from A to B, but God forbid you wrap one around a tree at 120 miles an hour. I'm going to want the German tank. I'm not going to want the $10,000 Toyota, you know, and, and, and by virtue of that, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. I mean, so for example, we deploy typically, and we recommend the same firewalls that, um, you know, the Pentagon, the DOD and other hardened uh, cyber warfare facilities use. And there's a reason for that. And we're typically 10 to 20% more, but my God, the return on investment is that you don't go down. You don't get ransomed. You know, if you're calculating risk tolerance, how many people are sitting there while like literally sometimes for days while you're trying to get your data back, you're paying them by the hour, you're paying the electricity bill, you're paying somebody like me, you know, to do that when you could have just spent a little bit more money up front and, and vastly <laughs> mitigated that possibility. But you like 20 bucks an hour, Nick? Or what? <laughs> 20, bucks, 20 bucks an hour. <laughs> if that's uh, your security more, guy, you, 
<laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be hacked. And I forgot my PSA that I wanted to throw earlier was if you ever see Nick on the list of speakers, yeah, turn off your automatically connect to and watch for that Wi-Fi <laughs> one because oh, no. it's it's yeah, my you, favorite. Hey, we're you just will trying. get messed with. Yeah, yeah. I know you're gonna innovate to something new next time anyway. Yeah, well, and I, I do. I mean, it, that that's one of many different different ones that I do. Uh, you know, but it's such an easy demonstration for somebody like me where it's like, yeah, here's how I just hijack this entire Marriott, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like, oh, yeah. there's a point of sale system in the should. Starbucks by the lobby. You know, it's, 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 it's a very simple thing because it's, we're usually very lax with that. And so my demonstrations aren't meant to show my prowess. They're to underscore how freaking easy, you know, any 15-year-old kid with a laptop and the ability to sit through two hours of boring YouTube videos can do what I just did. I want to uh, see you next time get into someone's watch and report like 200 beats per minute, like a heart attack situation or something. What do you want to- <laughs> I hope nobody has a heart attack. You know. Well, and I think that's kind of why we wanted to have you on, right? Like that, that it's with you. I've been around a lot of security people over the years doing these speeches and doing these talks. And it's usually about their own prowess. It's usually about, they bring some flashy piece of thing in and they hack the crap out of everybody. And they, shake their fingers at them and you're really taking a, a different stance for it. You're, you're there to educate. You're there to help us out. Um, you know, you do make us all want to wear a tinfoil hat when we're done, but, but you do it in a way that I, I still like you. Like I want to have a drink with you anyway, even though you make me not want to have my watch on or my phone on. Um, yeah. If, we, if we're going to the bar, I'm leaving all my electronics back, back in the room. They're going to be turned off. Yeah. You can join me in my next 12 step meeting. No, <laughs> so I, uh, no, never no, made I, it past three. Right. So, so my, my, my basic premise when I'm speaking and talking about cybersecurity and I'll do hacking demonstrations and all that kind of stuff is I love technology. I will have every stupid gadget from wherever it is because I like to see what it can do, but I want to marry that with security. And, and my, my entire point is embrace technology, use technology. You know, if it's going to make your business 50% more effective or efficient or whatever that is, embrace it. Just understand that with that adoption of technology, it has to be married to cybersecurity because if it's not, you're opening up a massive vulnerability that is going to make that product significantly vulnerable or literally just put you out of business for a period of time, if not forever. So as long as you, as long as you have that, when you're downloading the app, look at where it's made, you know, is, you know, TikTok, for example, you know, we were talking about that before this, like it's made in China. It's a surveillance app first. It is getting so much stuff. A colleague of mine reverse engineered it. And what this is collecting on people is terrifying. You know, so when you were looking at that, it's like, okay, a Chinese made app, I probably shouldn't be installing that into my phone, but one that's made in the EU where they have the GDPR and they are beholden to a government that will take them to task if they violate your data privacy, that's a lot more safe. So like when, you know, one of my kids comes and says, oh, I want this app on my phone. And believe me, they, one of them has the most defended Android in North America. You know, I, when they, when they come and say, I want this one, they have to send the request Two, I actually go look up and say, okay, where's this company located? Oh, great. Their headquarters are in London, but their development is in Kazakhstan. No, because I don't know what's, what's been put in there. You know, and it takes me five minutes to look this stuff up, but, but it is that much more you know, better. It's more secure. You know, that's it. Just, just embrace it. Use every stupid gadget you want. Just understand the risks involved with that. That's it. 
That's it. That's great advice. And, and I want to pivot this cause we're, we're getting close to the end. We're just going to go over here. Cause this is just too, good. this is too good. Yeah. But I, I want two, two questions that Travis and Jonathan started uh, kind of in their, in their drink introductions were, you know, how are trade contractors stacking up? And then what can we learn from other industries in the process? So let's start with, you know, how are contractors stacking up? You know, we, uh, particularly this is a trade group usually, um, but how are the ones you're working with stacking up? Obviously don't out yeah. anybody. And of course, so we never terms, want that. Sure. No problem. And in, in terms of size, um, I would typically equate them with medical practices that I see. So medical practices are typically way behind. The doctors usually don't care about their own compliance and data security because they're too busy healing people, pulling teeth or on the golf course. Um, you know, so by virtue of that, there's really not much you know, played to that. They recognize they need technology. They recognize they need a database. They recognize they have to go from point A to point B and their staff needs technology in order to get their job done, whether it's, you know, receiving emails from customers or whatever that is, but there's no real integration, uh, you know, of that. And that's true, I think, of many small to mid-sized businesses. As you start to grow, that means the business is starting to develop processes and procedures, you know, just for business management if you will, how does a workflow move? How, how, do, how do we manage this uh, business so that accounting you know, is properly receiving the information from sales every time sales makes a, you know, makes a sale and has to generate an invoice? That those kinds of things are put into place. And by virtue of that, you start to recognize the need for this. Uh, you know, I've walked into or talked to a lot of different mechanical contractors or you know, in construction, all of that. And I can usually gauge by the size where they are, but I can also usually gauge by the leadership. You know, when we typically have, let's say, an older demographic running a company, you know, because let's say it's a family business and I inherited it from my grandfather who founded it in 1898 or one of those. I have one of those where they founded, it, I think it's like 1899 or something. It's a fifth generation running that company. You know, this is what they know. This is what they do. They do HVAC and plumbing all day long and, you know, everything else. And I say, that's fine. I don't do oil changes on my own car because I don't want it to blow up. You know, I hired somebody to actually do that for me that I trust. And this is a symbiotic relationship that we have. And a lot of people understand that. And so by virtue of that, where I see a lot of contractors is no more, I think, no on average, no worse or better than, than other industries where the focus is, is on the profession. It's on the trade. It's on the achieving what they are good at. I know how to build a building or I know how to install an HVAC unit or, you know, I'm a pipe fitter. That, that's, that's what we're talking about. And so everything else is, is secondary. So impressing upon the leadership to say, hey, you know, this is why we have this relationship. I'm your mechanic in this sense, making sure the car doesn't blow up. That goes a long way. But in that sense, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't rate um, the mechanical contracting or construction industry um, as better or worse than, let's say, comparable size organizations. And I work across all verticals. I'm not selective in that sense. Although I do have to say, I like the trades the best. You guys throw the best conventions. <laughs> Everybody's nice. Everybody's nice. When I deal with Wall Street people, it's the worst. They're like, just go up and dance monkey for two hours and then leave. Uh, you know, and, and you guys are like, hey, let's come, let's go have a beer. It's great. Yeah. We definitely know how to unwind, I think. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. That, come, that comes with the high stress profession. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, so so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of way all that. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and we like to see it. I mean, I think with the, I think the one thing we can learn from the other industries 
that are a little bit ahead of us is as we get more reliant on technology, we have to be reliant on security because if we put our eggs in that basket, then we better well secure it. And, and that's what I think we can learn from them, right? Is there any other tips we can maybe learn from other industries that, you know, you hit the doctor one and then we saw, you know, ransomware hit all their any files that shut down like their ability to, to bring somebody back to life. That stuff's scary and they were right. relying on it. Right. Well, and that was one of the goals of the COVID-19 or is one of the goals of the COVID-19 Cyber Threat Coalition is that we want to be that extra layer of defense for hospitals and critical infrastructure because God forbid a hospital gets ransomed and then the ventilators don't work, you know, especially in the pandemic. I mean, that's that's tantamount to murder. The, uh, the one thing I would say uh, advice, not necessarily from another industry, but um, more from more from those organizations that are required to adhere to a compliance and they know it and they embrace it. I would say that understanding holistically what your business is in terms of risk tolerance and then how that risk tolerance applies, not just to your technological solution, the security that is going to ensure that technological solution stays up is one of the most important things. Virtually every company I know that is heavily invested in drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will, Jim's Jones style for DFARS or FedRAMP or DOD contracts can, can tell me to the penny what their, what their, um, risk tolerance is because that is a fundamental part of understanding what they need to tell the government. That is something I think that is universally true. Even if you've, you will never touch DFARS or a federal compliance in your standard, know your risk, understand that tolerance, because if you don't, the technological solution that you have now that is working fine for you may absolutely be horrific when the bomb drops in your business. That is a huge, huge problem that I see all the time. People are clueless. Leaders are clueless about their actual technology solution because they cannot quantify actual risk in hard and soft dollars. That is really important information. And we want to, we want to wrap it up, but I know you kind of scared the crap out of most of us. I'll be honest, but you always do. And I always appreciate it. Like in a good way. You're but, welcome, I guess. Yeah, no, be like, seriously, man, this was something, um, you know, I learned from this and I've, and I've presented with Nick before and, and I agree with it. I was the one on stage always saying like, if your IT guy tells you he's your security person, he's the wrong IT guy. He's lying to you like yeah. that. We just, I always knew over time that we could not do this. Uh, you can't do both professions. They're very, very different. Um, they have different goals and different. Uh, so when Jonathan, Jonathan and I argue, it's not even about security all the time. We're arguing about other things that he drives me nuts on. So, but, <laughs> but I want to spin it because we are all, you know, technology folks and you are a technology, you're a techno optimist, right? You, and I want you to finish with that because I think that's a, that's a weird distinction for most people to realize somebody who warns somebody so much is also, you said it, you, you, you love all the gadgets. So I want to, I want you to finish on that. So at least people maybe take their tinfoil hats off by tomorrow morning headed to work. Well, I will note that nobody here has taken their tinfoil hat off yet. So, <laughs> so there you go. Mission accomplished or not. I don't know, <laughs> you know, but, but what, what I'm saying basically is, you know, we are, we are living in a technological world. You know, I, I like to say there is no going Amish on my watch. <laughs> you know, with this kind of stuff, you know, we need technology. We need to embrace technology. Technology is going to be everywhere. We are raising a new generation of kids for those of us that are parents that are digital natives. You know, they, they were born with cameras and smartphones in their faces and hands and all of this. And so it is very important that we, we embrace technology because it's not going anywhere. And so by virtue of that embracing, we also just have to make sure that we're embracing security. We're making smart choices. That's why I did the five laws of cybersecurity. And law number three is humans trust even when they shouldn't. 
And so when you are embracing your technology, have a mindset of skepticism and distrust on if that app is good, is that, is that you know, gadget you're buying secure and all of that, and then just make the, the correct controls for it. Put in a good firewall at your house, put in something for your business, just make good choices. If that email looks too good to be true, it probably is, you know, it's those kinds of things, you know, and so I, our first line of defense really is just who we are. So embrace technology, just, you know, have that filter. Well, thank you for joining us today, Nick, to the rest of the dorks, uh, from the rest of the dorks. We really appreciate you. And Anytime. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hang out. I mean, you, you guys drink on a drink on a Wednesday. I'm good. And we know how to have a good time, right? There you go. There you go. Yeah. You know, that's the whole idea. We couldn't do the virtual bar scene any, we couldn't do the real bar scene. So we're making our own virtual one where we have those really good conversations. And so we appreciate having you. We appreciate everybody who joined us, everybody who's downloading and listening to this. A teaser coming ahead. We're going to go into the Star Trek world. Uh, we'll have the next generation next. Um, a teaser in there. We're going to have our friend Walker Lockhart and James Simpson on to join the us. Doy. Oh yeah, to, to, to join us and talk about what the next generation will look like. Uh, I'm going to close with the Nick uh, Espinosa quote here is his finisher for everything. Thanks for joining us today. Stay safe and stay online. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Thank you all. Thank you. All right.